This morning's reading is from chapter 4 of John's Gospel, from verse 43 through to the end of the chapter. After the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. So here we go, continuing on in the book of John. We've got one more week. We're going to be looking at this before Christmas time. We'll break for the summer. And then next term, uh, when we come back in the new year, we'll actually be jumping back into Genesis. Then we'll go back to John. All sorts of fun uh, and looking forward to that. But John's Gospel's been really good. It's been so good for my own heart, encouraging me to live for Jesus more and more. Uh, and I want to start off by telling you about a, a little book that I've been reading with the kids and get into somebody else uh, who has been encouraging me to live for Jesus more and more. So we've been reading uh, this book at home with our kids. We've finished it now. It was really great. Uh, it's called Everyone a Child Should Know. If you're still looking to get a grandkid or a, a younger person that you know, uh, a book for Christmas. This could be a really good one. Essentially, it's got 50 people from Christian history over the last 2,000 years that kids should know about. And it gives lots of different pictures of what a life lived for Christ can look like. Uh, highly recommend it. Really, really good stuff. One of the people in this book is Amy Carmichael. Now, Amy Carmichael uh, was a woman born in 1867 uh, in Ireland and she was a, the eldest of seven kids. She came from a Presbyterian family, so big tick there, good job. Uh, but at the age of 20, in 1887, uh, after her family had founded a, a church after the, the father of the family had died and after she'd been reaching out uh, to girls that used to work in the sawmills and uh, the poorer people in Ireland and that sort of stuff, uh, she felt a call to become a missionary and to serve God in the mission field abroad. Uh, and she got this call, like I said, when she was just 20 years old. And it was kind of amazing because she was, she was an unlikely missionary figure. Uh, she was a woman in a time when women still had fewer privileges than men. Uh, so the idea of her traveling overseas for it was still quite a new concept that women would go out there and do this. She also was quite sick. Uh, she had a disease called neuralgia. I think I'm saying that right. Do- doctors, nurses, you guys can correct me later. Uh, but essentially, it would leave her sometimes uh, sick in bed for weeks on end. She was rejected by at least one missionary agency for her health. The first time that she went to India, she had to come back after 15 months uh, because of her health and then she went back again and stayed there for the next 60 years uh, ministering to all sorts of people there in India. Uh, 
Now, she often said that the, the work that she became most famous for, which was her work uh, with young women and girls, really started when uh, a little girl named Prina ran away from one of the, the local temples. At the time, uh, cultural custom was still for lots of young girls to be given over to the temple and essentially formally participated in some form of prostitution in order to, to make money for the, the temple priests that existed there. And she fled from that situation. Amy gave her a place to live. She gave her a place where she could be loved. She protected her from those people that tried to come and claim this little girl back. Uh, and essentially, this became her ministry, rescuing girls. And more and more of them came to her uh, in need and with the hope that she was going to take care of them. She ended up setting up uh, a foundation especially designed to do just this, and thousands of kids were saved from the danger that they were in, and they were loved like Jesus uh, did, and they were taught about Jesus, and tens of thousands of people have become believers through the ministry that she started. When um, they would ask these girls what it was that actually drove them to go and seek Amy out, they said it, it was love, Ama, which means mother in Tamil, uh, they, they loved, she loved us. That was, that was the reason they came to her. They knew that in her, they were going to have this person that was going to take care of them. And through that, they heard about Jesus and they became Christian and entered into God's kingdom. And that story was kind of in my mind this week as we look at this passage because we're going to see in this passage the story of the official son and how we see Jesus living in such a way that people come to him in need, that he loves them and he teaches them and they become believers through that work. So we're going to think some more about that in this structure, and so we'll jump into the story first of the official's son. Now, before we get into the story proper, we've got these little transition verses here that sort of help us to understand how we go from the story last week, where we had the woman at the well, to now this story with the official's son. Now, we've got this curious little line here where it talks here about how after the two days that he'd spent with the Samaritans uh, in their territory, that he left for Galilee. Remember, Jesus has been working his way from Judea down through through the Samaritan territory uh, and now down into Galilee. But it says there, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So he's leaving for Galilee. And it's because apparently a prophet has no honor in his home country, and that's kind of what Galilee is. Now, you can read a bunch of different people on this. I don't know if you guys talked about it much in growth groups. Nobody's totally sure why it is that they say here that Jesus goes to his hometown because there was no honor in his hometown. Everyone's a little bit confused about that. My theory is this. He's been up in Judea, and he's been preaching the God. Well, he's been you know, starting to give hints about who he is. And some of the religious leaders have heard about what's happening, particularly how he's been baptizing folk. And Jesus knows that as soon as people really start to get into the core of his teaching, where he says that he and the Father are one, that he is equal with the Father, it's going to cause a massive conflict between him and the religious leaders. And eventually it's going to lead to his arrest and his death. But that's not the time yet. Jesus knows that that hour has not yet come when that's meant to happen. And so I think the reason that he goes down to Galilee, this place where there's less honor for him, is to actually slow down his ministry. He's, 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 he's on a schedule here, and he doesn't want this picking up too much speed. And so I think the reason he goes back down to Galilee, where he knows there's going to be less honor is, this ministry thing is not going to get out of control before it's meant to. So he's going down into Galilee to hopefully slow down the ministry, 
And it says there, though, that even though this is his plan, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. This is also a classic Jesus move, right? He does these things to try and slow down the ministry. He'll heal someone. Don't tell anyone. They go and tell everyone. He gets there. There's a crowd following him, so he crosses from one side of the lake to the other. They get boats and cross from one side of the lake to the other. Right? People just keep getting drawn to him. So he's gone down into Galilee here. He's been, I think, trying to slow down the ministry, but he's still welcomed well by the Galileans. And then we get into this story about this royal official who's going to come to him with the hope of Jesus healing his son. And we're back in the territory of Cana where the first miracle in John's Gospel happened. There's, there's seven big miracles in John's Gospel that John really focuses on. There's more miracles than that, obviously, in Jesus' ministry. And we get pictures of those from the other Gospels. But John's kind of particularly focused on these seven miracles leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. And this is the second of those miracles. So it says, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son that was close to death. Now Jesus' response here is kind of one of these classic, Jesus hears the question, he knows what the person making the request wants, but he's also got his own thing that he wants to communicate or deal with, even as we deal with this problem that you're bringing to me. Because let's, let's look at it. We've got a fairly desperate father here, right? Now, Capernaum is actually a pretty significant distance away, somewhere between like 25, 30 kilometers, that, that sort of distance. And so he's traveled all this way to Jesus. Why has he gone to this sort of effort? Why, why has he done this? It's because his son is at the point of death. Right? This, this is his only hope. And Jesus' response to this desperate man is, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. It doesn't seem quite on point, right? Like it doesn't totally seem like the right response to this desperate father coming to him and saying, my son is sick. Now Jesus is going to deal with that, but first he wants to teach them on this idea. Unless you see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. It's hard to tell if it's kind of a a rebuke, if this is a problem or not, but either way, it's completely true. Jesus knows that they are going to come to faith only through the miracles and signs that Jesus is going to do. Later on in John's Gospel, we're going to see him appeal to them, say, you've seen the miracles, if for no other reason than believe because of that. And it's, not, it's a good thing that the, the, the NIV here, they've, they've done a good job, they've translated the, the you there as you people to help us understand that when he says this, he's not just talking to the man, he's talking to all those people who are around him. It's a plural you. The man comes to him, desperate for his son's sake, and Jesus says, you people won't believe unless you see miraculous signs and wonders. This father, though, out of concern for his son, is not to be put off his course. He's not particularly interested in a lesson here on the subtleties of faith and belief and miracles. So he says respectfully again, Sir, come down before my child dies. And now, Jesus deals directly with the issue at hand. He says, no, it's cool, your boy's good. Or in Bible talk, you may go, your son will live. Now, 
This is pretty amazing just that Jesus would be like, no, you, you, this, this whole thing that you've traveled 25 to 30 kilometers for, that you've walked all this way for, it's fine. Like, that's a bold statement. What's really even more amazing is that the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Again, he's just traveled 25 to 30 kilometers. If you've got a decent walking speed, that's at least like a six-hour journey for you to make. If Jesus gets this wrong... It's a 12-hour round trip minimum just to get back to Jesus to let him know, oh, that didn't work out. Is there anything else you can do? This is a legit step of faith for him to take Jesus at his word and trust him that his boy, who is close to the point of death, is going to be okay. There's legit faith expressed in this. But what's interesting is, is that whatever... It means here that he had faith in Jesus' word, that he believed that what Jesus said is true. It's still somewhat short of believing in Jesus fully. Because we're going to be told in just a couple of verses here, that as a result of what happens next, the man and his household believe in Jesus. There's faith in God's word, there's, there's faith in believing what Jesus has said, but that still seems to be a little bit different from believing in Jesus. So here's what happens next. While the man was still on his way back to Capernaum, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. The man is trusted in Jesus' word that he's going to get better, but who knows exactly what he thought that would mean. Did he, did he think that this was some sort of prediction? Did he think it was a prophecy that he returned? We, we don't know. And, and this is the interesting thing. People often with Jesus' miracles, when they read the, the, the gospel, if they're not believing and that sort of stuff, they can try and somehow keep Jesus as a good guy, but, but diminish the God stuff. All right? People want to say something like, Jesus is a good teacher. He has some great moral ideas. Everybody wants Jesus on their team. Right? I like him. He had some, some neat stuff. Jesus, loving guy. I'm pro-Jesus. I just don't, I leave the religion stuff out of it. But you can't deny that what's being presented here is that Jesus has power beyond what anybody could do. That there's no way that he had, with some advanced medical knowledge, could pull this one off himself. With the latest 5G technology that we have, medicine is just getting to a point where you can do operations remotely and save somebody's life where you can have a doctor with a robot in one space and, and then you've got robots at the other end and you can do surgery over vast distances. With 5G technology coming in, we are just starting to figure this out. Jesus is pulling this off 2,000 years ago. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just a friendly face. He's not just the giver of gifts. He is the Lord of life with this incredible power. And the man in this story, the royal official and all of his household understand what this miraculous work means because it brings them to faith. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. When they experienced this miracle, when they put the pieces together, when they realized that what Jesus was doing was not just making a prediction that the boy would be healed, but rather at his word, the boy was healed, 
they understand that Jesus is not just somebody that I come to to get stuff, but rather he's something much, much more than that. The Lord of life. And John finishes this up with this little tagline, this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. See, all of John's recounting of these miracles, they're designed to teach us something about Jesus. Because we see here, Jesus straight up saying that it's through the miracles and signs that people come to faith in Jesus. And all of them are kind of building up to the one great big miracle that reveals without a shadow of doubt who Jesus is, and that is his resurrection from the dead. Now it says here at the end of that passage, like I said, that after they see this miracle, the man and his household believe in Jesus. Now, the resurrection hasn't happened yet, but I really do believe that when it did happen, that these guys would have been the first among God's people to say, we believe that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of all. They weren't just believing in what he said, they believed in him, the person of Jesus. It's the difference between sort of saying, I think the Bible is true and good, and loving Jesus and believing in him. So, what are we meant to grab from this. I, th- I think, here's a really good tip, right? Whenever you're reading the Bible and you want to understand how does this apply to my life now, a really good question to ask yourself, particularly in these stories, so whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's the Gospel, the, these narratives, one of the best questions to ask yourself to figure out what, are, what does this mean for me is to say, whose shoes am I meant to put myself in? Who in the story am I meant to relate to? Now, oftentimes, we're going to be able to relate to, to different people in the story, and that's cool. But here, I think it's fairly clear-cut. If you're a believer in Jesus, I think that we're meant to carefully, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. If you're not yet believing in Jesus, then I think you're meant to see this passage through the lens of the royal official from Capernaum. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain what I mean about putting ourselves in Jesus' shoes and then I'll talk about what it means to be a non-believer seeing this through the lens of the royal official. The Gospel author John, who wrote this Gospel, he, he wrote some other letters in the New Testament. This is a quote from one of them. He wrote, But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. John, the Gospel author, believed that we were to imitate Jesus. That we're to obey him and follow him. And I think that we see here an example from Jesus for us to follow. So the question is, what is Jesus doing in this passage? We've got this picture here of Jesus He's been going about, he's been doing ministry, he's been giving hints about who he is. But whatever it is that he's been doing, it's been drawing people to him wherever he's gone. And here, we see this man drawn to him with the hope that his son might be healed. He hears that Jesus is in town, and even though it's a 30 kilometer walk down the road, he says, this is my hope for my son to be healed. And so he's coming to Jesus in need. Jesus is living in such a way that people, when they're in need, come to him. Now, 
I said before that we have to carefully put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, and this is why. This might come as a surprise to some of you. We can't do everything that Jesus did. And none of us are going to be resurrecting ourselves from the dead by our own power anytime soon. So we're meant to imitate Jesus, but also recognize there's, there's some things he did, and there's some things that we can't do. Now, here we see him exercising incredible healing power. Now, I believe that God still heals people today. I believe that as we pray for healing, that God still acts in this world, that he can use us and work through us to heal people, but it's still different from what we see here with the God-man Jesus doing it, right? But just because we can't heal and meet people's needs in that way doesn't mean that we can't live in such a way that we draw people to us. We were encouraged last week to worship in spirit and in truth. And the thing is that as we do that, as we worship in God's spirit, and it's active in us, then we start to live in such a way that people are going to be drawn to us. Because this is the sort of thing that God's spirit produces in us. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now I don't know about you, but if I'm in need, if I'm suffering in some way, then the sort of person that I would want to have by my side is somebody who's loving, joyful, peaceful, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. When we live in accordance with the Spirit, we become the sort of people that people go to for help. I know you know this by experience. That when people are broken and hurting and they're in trouble, the people they come to are those people that they can trust to be all these things. Now here's the thing. That can be hard. It, it's inconvenient and difficult to deal with people when they come to us in their brokenness in their sinfulness, in their pain. And the truth is, we can't deal with it like Jesus does. We can't simply speak a word and solve their physical problems. We, 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 we have to carry those burdens with us. Now, Jesus does that too. Come to me all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. But the thing is, is that even though it's harder for us than it was for Jesus, it doesn't change the idea that this is what we're meant to do, that as we live like Jesus, we're going to have people coming to us in need, and it's our responsibility to love them well. But the cool thing is, is that just like as Jesus met this man's physical need, he came to faith, so people will through us. And again, we might not be able to do the same sorts of miracles that he does, but through loving people like he does, through meeting their physical needs then we get a chance to teach them just like he does here. See, in our church circles, where we are so big, rightfully so, on proclaiming the gospel, we believe that it's through the proclaimed word of God that people become a part of God's kingdom. And so we focus on that, and that's a really good thing. In some ways, we want to be a gospel-preaching church above all else. But here's the risk. When we prioritize that in the wrong way, then we become a gospel-preaching-only church. And we don't love people in these concrete, physical ways that show them the love of God for them. And that's the problem, because we see here clearly that Jesus does both. Now, he's unashamed about the fact that as he meets people's physical needs, as he's loving them in that way, he also teaches them. 
you people see will won't believe in this this miracle signs and wonders. And so living like Jesus means that we're going to draw people towards us who need help. And as they do that and we we seek to love them and meet their physical needs, we also seek to teach them just like Jesus does here. But the cool thing is that as we do this, they come to faith. It's through the miracle that Jesus does for them. It's in meeting that physical need that their eyes are opened and they see Jesus for who he truly is. And it's the same for us. When we show people the love of Jesus in these concrete forms where we meet their needs and we love them, whether their need is financial or relational, physical, whatever it may be, that may very well be the thing that opens up their eyes so they can see Jesus truly and clearly. I was once told that uh, patients don't sue doctors who make mistakes. They sue doctors who make mistakes and who they don't like. And I think it's the same with us, us Christians. If we're telling people about Jesus and they're not believing, it it could be because God's not moving in their heart. Or maybe we're just not loving people in such a way where they actually want to listen to us. That we need to realize that it's in, in loving people and meeting their physical needs and caring for them in their brokenness that that's the sort of thing that speaks to the truth of the hope that we offer them in Jesus. And so we've got to do all these together as believers in Jesus to live like him, love like him, and teach like him. And in the hope that as we point them to the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, they'll believe in him. And I said that Two ways to read this story. If you're a believer, put yourself carefully in the ways of Jesus. But if you're not believing yet and you're here this morning, then I said that the person who you should probably put yourself in the shoes of is the royal official. Because he comes to Jesus from an interesting place. And this may or may not be where you are. But there's no doubt that we, we know people out here, everyone here, who are positive about Jesus, but not necessarily big on the whole, you know, following him with everything that I have idea. And we see... This man come to Jesus here, willing to believe in his word, with a hope that he's going to meet his need in some fashion, but not necessarily coming to worship him as Lord of all. And if you're here this morning and you're not believing, you can absolutely come to God and pray and ask, God, please help me with this physical need. Please help me with this family situation. If you're there, God, I can't tell you how many times I prayed that before I became a Christian. God, if you're there, and you know what? God in his mercy might answer that prayer. He might give you that gift that you're looking for, but this is the thing you need to take away from this. That's not what he came for. Jesus didn't come into this world in order just to meet our physical needs and help us have a better life now. He came into this world so that we would see him truly and believe in him and know eternal life. This is what John just said to us last chapter, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He didn't come to just heal that boy so he could grow up strong and healthy and have a good life in this world. He healed that boy to show his power, to show a sign and a miracle that would speak to that boy's family so they would believe in him. And when he rose from the dead, to the point where I believe they would have been first in line to say, he really is the Lord of all the resurrected Lord of all. And it's our hope and prayer that if you're here this morning and you're not sure about this, 
that would be your response to as you think and meditate on the resurrection of Jesus and the miracles that he did. Because that's why I came into this world, so you believe and trust in him. So, if you're believing this morning, I hope that you are encouraged to take away from this this idea that we need to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and teach like Jesus, to see people believe. And if you're not yet believing, to think again about Jesus' miracles. And to think about why he really came into the world, which is to give the gift of eternal life. Let's pray together now. Father God, we thank you so much that you did send Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he's revealed himself to us through his miracles, most clearly in his resurrection from the dead. We thank you, Father, for the cross and the price that he paid for us. And we thank you, Father, that John here in this gospel is just showing to us again and again and again that Jesus is the Lord of life. We thank you, Father, that you meet our physical needs. We thank you, Father, that you meet our relational needs. We thank you that, that, like Amy Carmichael, you've sent people into this world to protect us and give us a hope in all these different ways. But, Lord, help us to be a people that don't just meet physical needs and or don't just preach the gospel, but do both together. That we'd love people in all sorts of concrete ways in order that we might teach them well about you and all that you've done. And that through this they might know you and love you and believe in you and have the gift of eternal life. And if there is anybody here this morning, Lord, that is coming to you looking for a better life now, but hasn't yet got the full picture of who you are, we pray, Lord, that you would take hold of their heart and give them the gift of faith. They might know not just life in this world, but life in eternity. And join us in worshipping you and giving you praise for all that you've done. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.